I made like this crispy charred onion one time. I remember somebody eating it. And then after we were talking and they said it brought up these memories of them being at a barbecue with their family. But then I talked to somebody else and the food reminded them of being at home with their family and how their parents were always fighting. And that so when they were eating, they felt so much tension because they were consuming all this energy. So it's like, oh, we're not just eating the food. We're eating the energy of the moment. Hello again. My name is Benoit Kim, and together we will be exploring the depth of the human mind. When I think about the Christmas season, food is often the first thing that comes to my mind. Well, according to the National Eating Disorders Association, about 9% of the United States population or 28.8 million Americans suffers from eating disorders and some form of disordered eating. Whether you think about your relationship with food or not, this conversation will challenge you to examine the type of relationships you have in your life with food or otherwise. Joshua Greenfield is a former celebrity chef, barefoot spokesperson, mindful eating expert, and published author. Joshua is the only guest who has been on the show for a third time in a row because of the endlessly fascinating philosophy he represents. From leaving the almost famous culture and pursuit of spirituality to barefoot advocacy and now debunking myths around cooking and food. Please enjoy this timely conversation with one of my favorite guests turned friends. Let's get this started. Discover More, Discover More is, a is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Please check out Yashua's forthcoming book, Fermenting with Your Best Friend. Yashua, welcome to Discover More as a regular. Good to be back. Nice to see you. Good to have you. One of my favorite parts about all of your books, which are six, I read two of them are their prefaces and forewords, written very sarcastically by you with great humor, such as, do not trust anything you read from this book, disregard everything you read from this book, and ultimately learn nothing. Uh, can you elaborate on this seemingly suicide move as a published author? Hmm. Yeah, I think I started writing first just for fun. Growing up, I was not a good writer. I really struggled in with reading and with writing. So when I fell in love with the the kind of medium, I felt some sense of freedom. It's like, well, I'm never really going to be a published author, so I might as well just do whatever feels good. And then when I actually started publishing books, I just kind of kept that idea going. And I thought it was just fun to let people know right from the very beginning that I know nothing and anything that you take away from this book is of your own experience. I don't want you to come away and say, oh, this is something that I learned and it's just because I read it and it must be true. It's like if it feels true to you and it resonates with you. And like as the Buddha says, there's no closed fist. It's not about blind faith. It's like come try this on. And if it resonates, great. So I kind of always lead my books and just let people know that it's in your hands. I'm, I wrote the book and I'm not responsible for what comes of it. <laughs> yeah. With your new book, Fermenting with Your Best Friends, you preface it numerous times. I know nothing right? <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> but how do you think that contrasts with other people's approach in 2023, trust and live and breathe with everything I have to teach you because I'm a self-proclaimed guru? I think early on in my spiritual journey, 
I almost fell for some, maybe you could call them these false gurus or false pillars in the spiritual world and people claiming to, you know, have things that maybe other people don't have. You know, I'm the reincarnation of this or I'm the one true that. And just the way that I saw it, which became very clear and obvious, was that we all are connected and we all have the potential to tap into these, you know, great mysterious gifts and, and things that we're here to share. No one's greater than anyone else. No one's information is any more right. Things might be right to you in the moment, but it doesn't mean they're not going to change. And when you start to kind of realize that and look at life from more of a non-dual lens, everything just makes sense. The old teacher that I always appreciated um, in Jed McKenna was he's like, you know, if there's a finger pointing at the moon, don't get caught up in the finger. And there's just something about that. It's very simple and I've said it a million times, but it's easy to get caught up in the physical person and say, oh, well, they wear this and they do that. And even with me being barefoot, it's like, I'm not telling people, oh, in order to live this life, you have to burn all your shoes. Um, it's not about that. I love being barefoot. And if you're inspired by that, great. But I just think there's a lot of people that almost by default in the way humans are, becomes very easy to want to follow somebody else. And it takes the responsibility off of us. It's the same thing in this kind of blame cancel culture where mm. my feeling is people are so scared to be looked at or to be ridiculed that it's much easier to point the finger at somebody else and kind of try to tear them down because it takes the pressure off of you. If they're doing something worse, oh, I would never do that, you know? I and mean, it kind of takes the pressure away from us. And for me, it's more about looking at my own reality and my own beliefs and my own experiences and the things that I've done and how can I continue to grow and evolve them instead of just being caught up in what somebody else says because, you know, words are strange and they can be very contradicting. And at some point, we have to be able to discern through all the noise. The, th the biggest thing for me, and I think one of the main reasons I wrote this book is that from just a cooking perspective, if you go online and you start looking up a recipe Everybody says a different thing. This person says this, this, that, you know, this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. And there's a million different possible perspectives. So at some point, you know, you have to figure out what makes sense to you. And, you know, your climate's unique, your ingredients are unique, the way your pan, there's so many little nuanced things that you have to figure it out. And it's, to me, it's not just about cooking. It's really about anything else in life and how that all comes together. That's actually perfect to one thing you wrote in your book. And this reads as below. And to Bigu, our mountain lion, you've taught me everything I know about fermentation and life for that matter. I met your beloved <laughs> cat, Bigu, of course, which actually means grain avoidance and a Taoist fasting technique. Mm. How has Bigu taught you everything you know about fermentation and life? Because you just said it, cooking for you is simply a vehicle to appreciate what life has to offer. Yeah, Bigu, he's, and I'm sure everybody says this about their pets, but he's, <laughs> he's a very magical creature. And to the point where a lot of people that come over and don't like cats, they're like, oh, I don't like cat. I'm not a cat person. And by the time they leave, they're like, I think I want a cat because he's just that kind of cat. He's not a normal cat. He's an alien. Um, <laughs> and something about the fact that we're just communicating through sound. He makes a lot of sounds and we kind of talk like, mm? and he's like, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of making these silly sounds and spending a lot of time throughout the day just like locking eyes with him and being present with him in those moments. It just brings me back to the simple things in life. And I think with food, it can be very easy to get caught up in the external, to get caught up in the mm. food as the star. You know, in this where I came from in like the Brothers Green cooking world, I saw that side of it. And, you know, food is this 
thing where people wait hours and hours in line for and they stuff themselves and and they miss out on the fact that food is really just this vehicle to create more connection, to inspire us, to bring us together, to help us with our vitality and health and all these things. And when we get too caught up in the physical, it can be easy to slip into that kind of obsession, addiction, and unhealthy relationship with it. I think that also reminds me another passage uh, from your book where it was a picture of you meditating in the mountains. And you talked about how you used to believe mindfulness is a specific segment of practice, sitting with your thoughts for 20 minutes. But you also talked about when you're in New York City, as soon as that inner peace is over, you're faced and confronted with a lot of noises and anxiety. So you'll have 20 minutes of peace with the 23 hours of noises and chaos. And then you said, oh, this is why you got to practice moments of mindfulness daily. I sense that theme from what you just said. Meditation to me used to be much more of this segregated experience of what I thought it was. Um, and that's where we've talked a lot about like the spiritual marketplace, right? And how so much of it is to sell you something. And I get it. Everyone has to work and, and live and figure it out. But what's tricky when we're living in this kind of consumeristic world is when we're really trying to develop this personal inward sacred practice and we have all this external noise trying to convince us that we can be more and have more and do more and, you know, whatever it might be, it can be hard to just fall in line with that. So my way of kind of quieting the noise in life isn't just sitting in my room for 20 minutes and making sure I get in my meditation, but how I can bring in meditation into all elements. So even if I'm in a place where it's crazy and crowded, you know, we're getting ready to fly next week and we're not around people nearly as much as we used to be, but of course, being at the airport and travel, it's more chaotic. And yet I've spent all these years and in New York City and different places cultivating this. So when I go into those environments, I can kind of find that place within myself. And I didn't necessarily cultivate that just through inward meditation, but also like many years of being in crowds and being, okay, there's a lot of people here. Just find my breath and just be aware and don't try to get too lost in everything. It's the same. We had uh, someone come and stay for a retreat recently. And this was a first. At the end of the um, retreat, we went up back kind of behind our house in the woods and we're sitting on a rock just sort of doing a closing. And I look over and about 50 feet from us is a giant bear. Uh, <laughs> and and I look over and I was like, just stay calm. And, and she looks over and she's like, oh my God. You know, just kind of <laughs> like for her first bear she had ever seen. And I just said, hey, bear. And... You know, just, I was like, okay, just stay still and we'll just be present. And then the bear scurried off. Um, I mean, I've been around bears a lot. And after she was saying like, I can't believe how calm it was like, almost like you had no reaction. And sometimes just getting that reflection is a reminder that it, it takes time to, to cultivate that. And we're all in our own journey through that. How do you think that's related to the idea that you also mentioned earlier? How like cooking is not this fancy, big end all be all thing you have to constantly strive for that has to be in a fine dining setting, Michelin star and so on. Because that was the ethos of your brother's green channel is to make cooking more digestible, pun intended, but more approachable <laughs> from a home cook setting. I'm guessing one of your underlying intention with your current book is to really debunk and tell people that fermentation is not this sexy, intimidating, scary, fancy thing that only certain chefs know how but everyday people like us can also do it at the comfort of our own home. 
First off, I have to say, I might need you to start writing my bios and stuff because just all these little, <laughs> to make cooking more digestible, there's something about that that's, that's brilliant, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like, because it kind of makes your brain say like, what? And then, oh. Yeah. Well, the I think the main sort of hypotheses of the book, if there is one, is that fermentation and the process of growth in life are very similar. Because in fermentation, all you're really doing is you're setting the conditions for transformation. We're not mm. actually... Like if I'm, if I want to make sauerkraut, I'm cutting up cabbage, I'm salting it, I'm placing it in a jar, you know, weighing it down and putting it away. Now I set up the condition, but then the actual transformation, I have really nothing to do with. There's this magical thing that happens with all the microbes and bacteria in the, the air that because that, you know, condition exists, they're, they take care of the rest and they turn that sour and they preserve the cabbage and they make it delicious and they bring a lot of life into it and all these different things. So you can look at it just from the perspective of, you know, sauerkraut and fermentation. But to me, life is very similar. We can try to heal and try to grow and do all these things, but the actual healing is so subtle, right? It's like our heartbeat. We're not actually in control. The heartbeat is doing its thing. But if we design our life in a way that supports all these things, then the healing, the transformation, it just kind of naturally unfolds over time. Yeah, I love when you said it's all about setting the conditions. Because I think a lot of us get caught up in the micro details of I need to do X for the Y and the Z to happen. But they don't really think about the paradigm and the framework they're operating with. It's like the idea of operational point. Mm. I think if your point of operation is skewed or misaligned, anything that you do and the buildings you build on top of that false operation point, sure, it could be the tallest building, but it's been operationalized in a skewed way to begin with. And I think it's a lot harder to, I guess, retract and go backwards and do damage control versus being mindful and intentional since the beginning. Yeah, you bring up a great point. And, and this is like a maybe a theme in all my books, but really anything with life is it's like, there's a great quote that Jed McKenna has, and I'm going to butcher it, but it basically says like, first wake up. And then after that, if you want to, you know, solve world peace or heal the whales or the ocean, like great, you know, lucky whales. But step one is like going on this initial journey to wake up. And it's of course easier said than done. And it doesn't mean that people aren't going to do other things and build businesses and then wake up in the interim. But if you can get clear on how the world works and how you fit into it before you start building on these foundations, then it's just much easier to build from a more clean and clear position. And like you're saying, if you build up a something from, as we all know, like a not a good foundation, it can look really pretty on the outside, but it's not fully supported. So for whatever reason in my life and my journey, like the number one thing for me has been figuring out these very basic and simple things. And I'm always learning. I'm always growing. There's there's no perfect place that I feel like I'll ever get to because life is just constant change and, and shifting and, and growth. But it felt very important early on to understand these things. So I'm not, you know, for example, it's very simple for someone to assume that they're like trying to grow this big business and achieve all this stuff. And then maybe one day, 20 years down the road, they find out in therapy that they were doing it just to get approval from a family member. So many people do so many great things in the world. It's very ironic just because their dad never said, I love you or something like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> and then, you know, and so it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that journey. But if we consider what's actually driving us and what's motivating us, it 
changes things drastically. So I like to be as clear as I can be on that. Reminds me of our reel from our last interview that did really well, because I think it really resonated with a lot of people. You said that goals don't matter because who you were when you established that goal is not who you become throughout the pursuit of that goal. Mm. So if we're changing, of course, goals change too, because that goalpost might not be the same goalpost you want by the time you get there. And I was first told that actually by my first bandmate in college, Tim Kiley, um, just brilliant musician. And at the time, I really had no confidence in my own ability to write and sing, but he was... I was like, this, he's a genius and I just want to support him. And I remember him you know, sharing something along. I may have shifted it a bit over time, but you know, really creating that idea. And I saw that journey with myself in music where it first was like, yeah, I want to be famous rock star, have this freedom and play music for people and inspire them and travel around the world. But then when I went on that journey and I started seeing like some of the dark sides of that, my actual intentions around music completely shifted. And suddenly it wasn't about trying to be famous. But I learned about the healing powers of music and the beautiful gift that music is. Ironically, like food has really paralleled that because there was a time when it was the same kind of like seeing food from a different way. I didn't necessarily want to be a famous TV chef that kind of like that was just presented to me. But when I all said and done on that journey, I was like, oh, food is actually this incredible thing. And if you look at almost any culture, they're using food and music and ceremonies and rituals mm-hmm. and, and all these different ways. And yeah, how can I bring that into this world that maybe has, for some people at least, have really forgotten about that perspective? In the food world, I've worked with a lot of people who are maybe more in the mindful space or the, you know, I Ayurveda doctors, Chinese medicine, and then I'll do a mindful eating experience with them. And they're like, I, I don't know why I never thought about mindful eating before. Like they're they're working with these clients and they're so detailed about what you're eating and checking pulse and all these points to help them understand what to eat. But they're like, oh yeah, even I don't have this relationship with food where I'm considering and checking in with how I feel while I'm consuming and how that might actually affect me. I love that you brought up music and food. I was literally thinking about the parallel processes. I was actually going to name the parallel process, but you took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) That said though, I believe, and he just hit me, where I think food and music are few of the two things that requires no actions or words. Mm. Sure, there's like food shows and competitions now, entertainment, sure. But if you can just sit with nothing but music and food that are resonating, you don't need any more additions. You don't need any more fancy layers. You don't need any more buy-in. You don't need any other entertainment value, just you and food or music, there's so much volume in just silence and nothingness. And I think food and music are the two few vehicles can deliver that, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I feel that way. And when you look at them more from a classical perspective as well, you look at music and even like studying different African cultures and tribes, I, I started to see that uh, like in West Africa, there might be somebody who is, is in some sense leading the drum circle right? But it doesn't mean that they're saying, hey, this is my band. This is my song. That's just their role. And everyone takes on a different role. And you have different drummers playing different rhythms, but all the rhythms come together. Somebody might be playing music longer. Somebody might have more mm. skill. And they so they might be you know, the quote unquote lead. But from this more collective perspective, they're not seeing it. At least that's you know, the, the ideal intention. 
as, okay, this is mine or I'm better. It's like, no, when we all come together, we create something beautiful. And I see that more and more to your point of like going on this journey, moving to Colorado, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but I felt this pull to just get to know food more and to understand where it came from and to understand my part in it. And now we actually, just as of a week or so ago, we actually went in with a friend and purchased like a, basically a farm, five acre Wow. Farm that we're going to turn into a permaculture hub for education and do mindful farm dinners and all that kind of stuff. I'm so excited and we're dreaming up what kind of animals we want to have and what we want to grow. And I know, talk to me in five years and it's going to be completely different for me in that journey. Not to mention, you know, fatherhood and all the other things to come. I hope I have a seat at the permaculture mindful eating farm epicenter. Anytime. <laughs> Just for the, you, no one else can sit in it. It'd just be <laughs> Benoit and just yeah. with, with the with the markers, like the Hollywood frame, yeah, but director. On it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have a seat in like that's always at the table. Just says the Benoit, and we don't tell anybody what it means. They're just like, oh, you can't sit there. Just not. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I I think I saw that coming with your chicks, right? Your your farm and your backyard farm is is growing, but I do want to. Um, Talk about like, I guess, like the role of food, right? How has it evolved in your mind as well? Because I do know the genesis or the origins of your journey of food is because of your chronic health. You used to almost choke on food almost daily, which mm -hmm. developed tremendous fear and trauma response for food. And I think that first piqued your interest and fascination with food as a medicine idea. But then through your almost famous culture as a celebrity chef, like traveling MTV TV shows, cooking for Steve Aoki, things like that, to maybe feeling more grounded, and now your mission to make food for the common good or as like a more accessible, because I also sense an idea that you're letting go of ownership of food. Because I think when it's like chef to a customer, the ownership of food is still on the chef. Oh, I created this dish based on the ingredients and you get to experience the fruit of my creativity mm -hmm. or my creations. Because you talked about, it's not about me playing the instruments like the African tribe. It's not about you, but it is us collectively creating this masterpiece. Yeah. It's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest, you know, if, if a cook <laughs> makes a meal and no one eats it, you know. <laughs> I mean, another example to kind of bring it back is there's a lot of debate around this, but the like kind of rightful slaughtering of animals. And, you know, I talked to a lot of hunters and they're like, oh, the only real way to eat meat is to hunt it yourself or to raise it and all these things. And I don't personally think that because I do believe that we all have different things that we aspire to do or are good at or natural at or have the, you know, the inspiration for. But as we've been in that world, so I, you know, since we last talked, I've harvested my first deer. Granted, it was on the side of the road. It was roadkill. So the, the car was the one that took that life. But then also we've been um, raising meat rabbits and processing them. We processed some recently. I think one of the things that I'm seeing from my own food adventure is that it's easy to separate, you know, the killing piece and to just go to the store and buy something already processed. It feels distant. It feels far away. But what I, the more I was tuning in to just eating meat, I was realizing that there was still a part of me that was feeling that energy almost in a kind of strange secondhand way. So when I started actually learning the process myself, I don't, the actual, you know, ending the life of the animal is not fun. It never feels good. I don't, like, there's no joy. It's just this, this weird, sad thing. 
And yet I know I'm being with that process instead of trying to put it in the closet and act like it's not happening. So that's just one example of how I'm starting to like, okay, I don't, I don't think people have to do this or I'm not going to try to guilt somebody if they're not involved in the process and they eat meat. I think we're all on our own, own journey. But the way it's unfolded for me is how can I be much closer to that experience? You know, and, and even what was strange is on Tuesday, you know, we let our chickens free range the second half of the day on the mountain. And when I, we went for a little hike, Aj and I just like a short walk and I came back and I saw a pile of feathers. And um, then quickly after I saw a fox grab chicken and pull it away. And it was the first time we ever lost a chicken. And I was like, kind of like, you know, yelling a little bit at the fox, like, no, you know, what do you say? Um, <laughs> don't do it. Um, but what was ironic to me is there was a sadness of losing that chicken. And yet I knew the next day we were going to be harvesting our rabbit. So I can't, it's not like there's any blame for the fox. The fox is just trying to, to live and survive. And when we start to create this separation between who deserves what, how things go, it just creates more distance between us and this natural cycle of life, right? Just like a tree, when a tree falls, it's not like it's dying in the whole world's mourning it per se. There's an impact that's felt, but the tree is evolving and turning into something else to then fertilize the rest. Um, and it goes on and on. And it's really just us humans that have created this deep separation from this natural cycle of life. So I'm curious, like, what do you think your current version of yourself since we are ever expansive, always, would go back in time and speak to your older version of self for still riddled with trauma, fear, anxiety around food because of your condition at the time? I mean, on, on the most simple level that wherever you are right now is okay, mm. because instead of trying to do anything or fix, just continue on the path and you will end up where you need to be. And also, I think just having some empathy for myself, which is something I've been feeling more just for the world and how challenging it is to be a human. Because <laughs> listen, there's no rule book. There's a million bajillion books out there on how to do this and how to do that. But there's no one unless you say the Bible is the one or whatever. And, and that's, there's no one specific rule book on how to do everything that fits everybody. And I find it, you know, incredibly humbling to be human. And I just had these moments recently where I feel a lot of empathy for people where it's like, yeah, it's, it's confusing out there. And we're living in this new modern time where we're being told that everybody has to figure everything out for themselves or everyone can do everything. You can make it on your own and it's your own and you can be the this and that. And it creates a lot of separation. So to go back to your question, I think I would just give myself a hug and say you're doing great and just keep on bringing in that presence. And over time, it will make sense. Just to, I guess, diverge from cooking briefly, yeah. since I think emotionality is also dealing with our relationship with food. Mm. Because I think with their current rapid rise of food addiction, the processed food epidemic, the curated scientifically, the bliss points by the processed food industries, right? The perfect sugar, crunch, all that ratio, which is the root of addiction. Because our brains are about 3 million years old. And we do not stand a chance, I guess, against the dopamine hijacked by the industries with all these psychologists working with the sole intention of maximizing profit by doing what's best for our brain, but not best for our well-being. So with that, like, why do you think it's so important for us to be first, be gracious and acceptance and loving of ourselves 
Because if we don't do that, we can't work on any other relationships. Everything that we consume, and not just food, but think of all of our senses and how much we're taking in, everything plays a role. And it can almost feel overwhelming when you start to realize that the, the sounds that we hear, the sights that we see, the things that we feel, we're consuming in all these different energies. Food seems like the obvious one because it's this physical thing. We can tangibly see it. Okay, there's an apple, it's here, and now it's, it's in my mouth. It must be in there doing something. I can feel it in my stomach. But we're impacted by so many different external forces all the time. And that's why I find that this slow process of bringing in awareness, bringing in intention of the different things that we do creates these really subtle changes over time. Granted, we live in a world where people are often addicted to the high and they want the maximum. It's kind of like we, we joke about it on our retreats. There's no promise or of transformation or peak experience or like I remember you said, <laughs> right, life is the peak experience. That was great. I'll never forget that because I can promise somebody something like I've been promised so many times to, oh, you do this thing and it's going to totally transform your health. And maybe it does blow your mind open and maybe you have this completely different experience that you've never had before and it opens you up to a new portal. Great. And yet from what I've seen, the change happens so slowly, so subtly. So the more food is a great way to kind of see that in action and then transfer it to other places in your life. Because when you sit down for a meal, if you are mindless and you're stressed out and you're at work and all these things, well, you might just throw that like sandwich in your face and it's gone in two seconds. And then your, your body is left having to deal with this, basically an entire sandwich that's like going through your body. Whereas if you sit there and you're very slow and calm, first off, your nervous system just being more relaxed, your digestion is going to work better. If you're chewing, you're going to be breaking down the food more so your body doesn't have to do as much work. And just those like simple, but to me now kind of obvious things, they trickle out into all these other areas. So I've just noticed how much my life has, it's like almost gone more in slow motion. And I'm feeling more in this middle. It's like the Buddha says, there's like, you know, there's these highs and lows, but there's also this middle path. And it doesn't mean I don't have these, these hills and valleys, but they're not as gigantic as they used to be. I actually, you and Aja and our experience for me to actually start practicing mindful eating, uh, still quite infrequently, but I do, I do it, I think like a few times. A few times every couple of weeks when I do remember. I did one last week. Uh, what is it like? Like what week. do you do when you do it? What is what is your experience or what do you tend to do? Same thing. I close my eyes. I, I look at it first and then I close my eyes for 10, 10, 15 minutes whenever eating it. Nothing, no music. I'm not watching anything and I'm just simmering and chewing my food. Make it very digestible, pun, pun intended. Mm. But then you experience fullness sooner, right? You have like your satiability gets also more full and food just tastes better. You're all, you can almost dissect the ingredients if they taste good, <laughs> right? And so it just makes it so much more like enjoyable and your desire to eat more incessantly also dies down, at least for me personally. Yeah, to me, it's like a win, 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 because when you really <laughs> think about the process of mindful eating, I'm not saying eat differently, like in terms of what you're actually eating saying experience what you eat a little bit differently, but ideally you're going to actually appreciate it more. So whatever food it is you like, if it happens to be a food that actually you don't, you come to find you don't actually like, well, then you're going to learn because sometimes when people slow down, they eat things that they are used to, you know, greasy, spicy, whatever foods that aren't great quality. 
Well, when you try to mindfully eat it, it becomes more challenging. You're like, wait, maybe I actually don't enjoy these flavors. Maybe this mm -hmm. isn't a pleasurable experience. Maybe there's something else that's more pleasurable. And if it is something that you enjoy, well, you have more time to savor it. Because I think as humans, we enjoy a certain amount of time for eating. Eating is like an event. You know, when you go to some countries where it could be, they could be sitting down for hours and hours and they're hanging out with friends and they're talking and they're laughing and they're, they're slowly eating food and they're enjoying themselves. But in a lot of places in like fast food culture in America, it's fast. You know, can we, can we get it to you in a minute and can you eat it in a minute? And it's like McDonald's, everything is soft and it just kind of like, you don't really have to do much chewing. It just kind of like, you know, it, it looks like a hamburger, but when you start squeezing it, it, it's like it almost mashes into one mold of unrecognizable stuff. As someone, as you said, that grew up choking on food, to me, what gets interesting about this is I look at the traumatic experiences we have as humans and speaking for myself, I see how valuable they are now. I can't explain why, but there's something about having these intense experiences that if you're able to overcome or to look at or to consider, they can actually be the thing that kind of helps you understand your purpose and, and your reason for being alive. And maybe it will change, but I feel very connected to supporting other people in that because of how bad it was for me and how much I struggle with my own health and stomach problems. And, you know, when you start changing and you start seeing that there's another way, it becomes obvious to share it with those that might resonate. Also, you've achieved the holy grail of phantom wiping. Dun, dun, dun. No uh, wiping, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't give a percentage. It's not... It's not every time, but most, the majority, the vast majority of the time. Um, yeah, we, the miracle poop, as you've seen in my fifth and elusive invisible book, um, <laughs> the secret of the miracle, which, which I realized, I think in that book, I don't actually explain the secret. I just, <laughs> you just um, say it. Maybe that will be the next book, going to the toilet with your best friend. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's something that Aj and I talk about a lot. It might seem taboo or strange, but bowel movements and, and just how we feel, it dictates a lot because, if you look at a uh, growing and farming and stuff, it's not just, you know, what we're growing so that we can eat, but also creating this sort of regenerative system. Um, that's something we're working on, you know, starting to compost our own waste products and putting them back into the garden instead of just they're gone, you know, down back into the city or wherever it might be that your, your waste goes. But bringing those conversations into the world and breaking the taboo, I think, can be um, very powerful. As you know, my fiance is going for GI doctor so and her initials bm becky <laughs> moon bowel movement <laughs> uh -huh. and she loves and i learned a lot about like women's uh, menstrual cycle issues with their gi constipations and the pain they experience it's it's because i <laughs> becky's not envious of many things that i have but one of the few things she is jealous of is my ability to poop three times a day every day and because like she struggles like for weeks she it's hard for her right what would she say about the about the phantom wipe? Would that would she consider that a good thing? Yeah. I actually never asked her ever, but she knows how I feel about phantom wipe as the holy grail. Because <laughs> <laughs> I do use that as an omen. Like if I have a phantom poop, I know I'm gonna have a good day, and it's never failed me. <laughs> Meaning making beings, right? But I'm I, I will ask her today because <laughs> she's going to a UCLA a conference for GI stuff. So <laughs> I wonder if, is that the holy grail just in the GI world? Like I don't know. It could be. Um, huh. could be indication of health, but I'll text you what she says after. But one thing that came up on my mind, Joshua, is the idea of how the concept of gut brain connections 
with the rise of like food fix, functional medicine, like people like Dr. Mark Hyman, who have really pushed these important concepts like microbiomes like you talked about, right? All that's really important now. I think conversely, today we're talking about brain-gut connection, mm-hmm. right? Thinking about what you're eating, thinking about what you're consuming with your mind through mindfully and mindfulness practices, which impacts our gut health. So like for you, like what are some of the tangible benefits have you seen just to really spotlight the power of mindful eating since that is a big role? And sure, I explained what I do, but you're a more expert on that sense. So if you could give like a two-minute TED Talk about mindfulness eating and some of the tangible benefits and how it's transformative in your life, we'd love for you to share. Yeah. Well, if I'm doing a TED Talk, got to start at the beginning. And, and like we said, I, I grew up um, having a mass fear of choking. Since I was a baby, my parents, whenever I would eat, I would choke and they would um, take me by the ankles and upside down and shake me out. And so that was my introduction into eating. It was very intense. Now, looking back, as it turns out, maybe I was doing something that many babies do, which parents are like my brothers tell me about is kind of this letting your baby choke because they have to learn how to eat. Mm. And there's sort of this baby led thing, feeding or something like that, where, you know, you just have to sit there and, and not panic as a parent and the baby will cough up the food and then things are okay. And I think my guess is my parents didn't know that was the thing and they thought I was choking and that was their action, their response. That's the best they could do. So fast forward, high school, eating very poorly, fast food, stomach issues, always in the toilet, always having cramps, diarrhea, just in a lot of pain, sitting, like looking at myself in the mirror on the toilet, just holding my stomach. Fast forward many years, you know, I was with a partner for a long time who had a lot of food issues and, and allergies and things like that. It's kind of got us into this other way of, of doing things. I remember one night we did this mindful eating thing where we ate in the dark and I had those miracle berries. I don't know if you know what they are. It's this thing that you take and it changes anything that's sour turns sweet. And there was something about that where it like tricks your mind. You're, you know, you're sucking on a lemon, but it tastes like you're drinking lemonade and different things like that. And, and something about that sparked this whole interest. So started doing a ton of research into food and trauma. And you know, I was, grew up around a lot of people that had eating disorders, uh, bulimia, anorexia. And even though I never felt like I was that extreme, I felt like I had some kind of disordered eating experience. And the more I looked into it, the more I was like, wait, does everybody have, like, do I know anyone that has a good relationship to food? Um, and mm. so many, you know, this person's on this diet, that person's on that, and they only eat this. And I'm like, man, there's so much freaking confusion. And I felt this calling to just want to support it. So after doing you know, lots of different research and talking to a lot of people, st- started doing these mindful eating dinners where we would take people, blindfold them. And just feed them food in a very unique way. And I would make all these kind of some simple things, some more interesting kind of molecular things and just notice people's responses. And I couldn't believe the experiences somebody would have. Like they would remember, like I made like this crispy charred onion one time. I remember somebody eating it. And then after we were talking and they said it brought up these memories of them being at a barbecue with their family. But then I talked to somebody else and the food reminded them of being at home with their family and how their parents were always fighting. And that so when they were eating, they felt so much tension because they Mm. were consuming all this energy. So it's like, oh, we're not just eating the food. We're eating the energy of the moment, which brought me onto this more kind of quantum molecular level where I'm like, yeah, we can look at the food as the physical, tangible experience. 
And yet, what about all these other subtle forces that are there? What about all the other things that are affecting us that we are digesting and taking in? Why is it that somebody, you know, is struggling with food, they change their whole diet, it works for a little bit, but then they start struggling again with this whole new diet? You hear it all the time. Somebody's like, oh, I went gluten-free. I feel so much better. I'm never going back to gluten. And then a year later, it's like they start eating the crappy products that are like fake gluten instead of eating just good quality wheat. And they start finding ways because they haven't dealt with the underlying addiction. So when I look at it, I always go back to what is the simple thing that is not being seen. It's not just what we're eating. It's how we're eating. So when I work with people on a mindful eating perspective, I try to keep it very simple. I don't try to make it about like, this is the way that we bless our food. This is the way that we eat, but rather give people a container where they can explore that for themselves. Because we all are unique. We all are different. I can offer my experiences. I can say, this is what works for me. I find that eating with my hands, this brings me so much closer to the food. I'm touching it. I'm part of it. With a fork, it's like a middleman. It can be much easier to create this kind of separation. But when the food's in your hand and you feel like a kid and you're being playful and you're tearing the broccoli apart and dipping it and grabbing it and, you know, eating it, it just makes it more fun. And then you're having this enjoyable experience. You're more relaxed. You have less tension, you know, if you get to that place and you're taking your time, you're chewing slowly. And just by default, I mean, I've been doing this now for 10 or 15 years and it's like just by default, slowly over time, health just continues to improve and continues to improve and continues to improve. So for me to wrap my TED talk up, there are a lot of quick fixes out there and there are a lot of people that do something. They go see a healer or they do a new diet or whatever it is and they might say, I feel great. And it might inspire, oh, you got to try this thing. I, I don't, eat, don't eat this anymore. I only eat this. And it's amazing. But it's so easy just to take a snapshot of that person's life and in that moment, it can seem great. But I like to look at these much bigger you know, okay, cool. Like that's how you feel in a year. I had a friend who, you know, there's this whole thing now. It's like the almost the anti-vegan movement where people are mm -hmm. just eating meat, right? They're like only meat. And maybe that works, but it can be easy to dive into these extremes without looking at the bigger picture. So I find that the more we're just intentional with what we do, there's this intuitive knowing that comes through where it tells us, hey, maybe don't eat that. And even if you do eat it, Next time, you might be a little bit more aware of that voice saying, hey, maybe that's not how you should eat or maybe you should slow down or that's really not what you want. The more you listen and trust that intuitive knowing, the more over time things just kind of harmonize. Thank you. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of Jet Talk. The, also, I think your dad was holding up by your foot because he's a foot doctor, right? That's true. He's like, look, he's trying to get a better look at my feet. <laughs> Uh, your arches are, are falling. Uh, yeah. Professional hazard. But yeah. <laughs> what did came up for me, and I think this segues into this question really well, and tying this into what you said earlier, is there are no rule books, and there's just so much freaking confusion out in terms of our relationship with food. One of the most resonating things that you share with me that stuck with me to this date is when I told you I've been sober from alcohol for almost three years now. And you said in passing, I don't know if you remember, but you said in passing, when you cut out a substance or anything, you're also cutting out the relationship you have with that thing. Mm. And, yeah. and you were talking about that whether you never enjoyed wine, but then you, once you started fermenting and making your own wine with Aja, your relationship grew. And you have hosts of wine and I think you drink it very, very infrequently. 
And I think that's very relevant here because I agree with you. I think it's more about the relationship that we have versus the tangible physical thing that we're looking at, whether that's food addictions, food fermentations, or life. Yeah, that's a great point. I'd like to share about it in relation to humans because we can cut out, it's just like dating somebody that we don't like. You can cut that person out of your life or break up with them or lose that friend. But if it's the underlying relationship that you're craving in some way, even if it's a distorted way, it's probably going to show up again. Mm. You know, it's like we need to face certain things in our life. If we don't face them, if we don't really learn the lesson, well, it's just going to manifest in some other way. Now, there's a beautiful thing to that because I think going away from things like alcohol is a great example. I was the same way. And and again, I don't know anything about alcohol. I'm not going to try to tell someone what to do or not to do. But from my experience, I, I was never an alcoholic, but I didn't like my relationship with alcohol. I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like the kind of alcohol I was consuming and exposed to. So I just stepped away for a very, very, very long time and maybe the occasional beer here and there or something, but it just was never enjoyable to me. I never really understood why people like really liked it. But as you said, when I started, you know, fermenting wine myself and seeing this really subtle and simple process, I'm like, oh, there actually is something really beautiful about this process that I can appreciate. So I was able to transform my relationship. Now it doesn't mean I necessarily drink it more than I used to, maybe occasionally, but I have a different understanding and different respect for the intention of that substance that in my life and in other people's lives. And yeah, I mean, that that's what's something that's very cool about fermentation is it is this natural process where like I found last year, I found a pineapple. We do some dumpster diving. It's been a while, but we had a big phase of dumpster diving and finding free food that's like perfect in the dumpster. And there was a pineapple that had been sitting in there and I cut into it to eat it and I smelled it and I was like, oh, this is turning into alcohol. Literally, it's fermenting just because that's what happens to sugars when they're left exposed and they start to break down. So, what I did was I just nudged it in the right direction. I cut it up, I put it in some water, added a little sugar and let it sit out and it turned into pineapple alcohol. I let it sit out even longer and then it turned into vinegar and now I have pineapple vinegar. And the more intimate that I understand these processes, which is I think the heart of a lot of the book is like helping people understand what fermentation is at a basic level, the more I can have a just cleaner relationship to the things that I put in my body. And I, I just want to make it clear for anyone out there that feels like maybe it feels daunting to whether it's to cook, to to eat better food. I don't think there's any perfect diet. I don't I'm not sitting here saying eat non-GMO, eat organic, eat local. Those are the things that I do because that's what makes sense to me. But everyone's in a unique situation. And rather than focusing on what other people are doing, you know, you see this online, it's like, you got to eat organic, otherwise you're dying. And it's, you know, it's terrible and pesticides. The problem with that is that we're taking on this energy of fear now. And then we're like, oh, I still don't have access to these foods. So now I'm going to eat the same stuff I eat, but now I'm going to feel horrible about it. And it's like, there might be some good to questioning what you're doing and seeing there's another way. But I would say instead of feeling bad about it, just recognize what do you desire to have in your life and how can you slowly take these tiny steps to work towards that? I can't believe you brought up <laughs> garbage, the dumpster diving. Dumpster diving. <laughs> that was one of my anchor points I was going to ask you. Uh -huh. 
I do want to table that though, since we're definitely in the group flow. And I think you'd appreciate this question. And I think it's one of the main theses of your book. What you said in your book, what if everything we were ever taught about food and everything else for that matter was completely wrong? As a formerly internationally known traveling chef for celebrities and MTV food TV hosts, as we talked about, Joshua, what are some beliefs that you used to uphold about food and cooking that you no longer subscribe to? Well, I think on a very simple level, and, and just to go to the Brothers Green thing, um, the belief that you have to have a certain amount of money or a certain quality of ingredients or kitchen space or equipment to cook good food, I no longer believe that. I've cooked in dorm rooms. I've cooked in hotel rooms. I've cooked on the street. I've cooked everywhere that you can imagine, the weirdest, most random places. And food is actually very simple. It's kind of like music. A lot of people say, oh, well, I can't sing. Um, you know, I have a bad voice. My sister's got the good voice. And I'm just, my saying people just cover their ears and tell me to freaking stop. Um, <laughs> but then I put them in the right condition and I get them to sing very quickly and very easily. And it's the same with cooking. The people that say, I can't do it. I can't do it. For it's, it's, yes, there is a level of chefness. I'm not saying you're going to be a Michelin star chef or that you even should desire that, but to actually learn how to cook for yourself or to grow food simply is very simple. Um, sourdough is a great example. People think making sourdough is really complicated. I have a whole section in my book about what I call my lazy sourdough recipe because I've had plenty of times where I've made sourdough and have very limited time and I'm just really busy and doing all this stuff. So I'm like, let me just see what is the least amount of stuff that I can do. And it's kind of like if you can mix flour and water and, and together and some starter, like you can probably make a decent loaf. It's going to taste like something. It's going to be good. I always like to go back, like as we were talking before, that on the energetic level, I think we're told food is just very cut and dry, you know, and it's just about calories. And if you eat this, it does this to your body. If you eat that, it does that to your body. And I think in doing that, we're cutting off all these other forces and all these other unseen things that maybe modern science can understand or certain sects of it isn't really looking at. So when we question what we know about food and how it makes us feel, things change. You know, I had someone recently who has been coming over for music and he hasn't eaten gluten for a very long time. And I was like, well, have you had sourdough? Because in the process of sourdough, most of the gluten gets eaten. And a lot of people that struggle with gluten mm. actually feel totally fine. It's like they say, I mean, it varies on, there's a lot of factors and how long it ferments, but it can be like 97% of the gluten gets dissipated in the process. So lo and behold, he tried some and he came back a few weeks later and was like, I'm healed. Like your bread <laughs> healed me, you know, and <laughs> I'm not claiming any healing powers either, but that shifted his whole belief. He spent all these years thinking bread's bad. And I was somebody even yesterday was here for a, you know, a retreat thing. And we were talking about how they grew up eating like wonder bread. And I was like comparing like sourdough, like good quality made love made sourdough to Wonder Bread is almost like comparing Heinz ketchup to like a fresh vine ripe tomato. <laughs> like they couldn't be any different. You're just like extracting basically just the sugar and putting it into bread form and that's what you're eating. Um, so when we have these assumptions of like, I, this is bad, gluten's bad. It's like we've, you know, villainized these things that it's usually not the whole picture. There's typically much more. Uh, part of me want to go into garbage or 
dumpster <laughs> diving to also debunk some myth. But I think I want to go into, since this is a social science podcast, <laughs> there you, go. Uh, you dedicated a couple pages on the science of fermentation. So yeah, what is the science behind that? And can you share it in a digestible format? Uh, unless you feel called to, to create a fermentation seminar, but the ball's in your court. I feel like to express this, I have to kind of talk about science versus a whole. Um, and I talk about this a bit in the book. Science can be a beautiful thing in a lot of ways. It's obviously created a lot in this world and it's, it's done good. I'm, I'm not like an anti-scientist per se. However, science is always striving for this kind of theory of everything. It's trying to bring all these different theories together to explain how the world works, how evolution works. And there's leading beliefs and leading theories, but at any moment, these things can be disproven. So when it comes to something like fermentation, I can read about the process of fermentation and how there's different bacteria and, and molds and things, you know, in the environment that are invisible. Like let's take something like sourdough. When you mix flour and water together and just leave it sit, all of these bacteria and yeast in the air that are invisible that we cannot see start to feed off of sugars, carbohydrates in this mixture and they slowly start to ferment that. And if you keep feeding it for a few days, you know, up to seven days or however long, you start to collect enough of that yeast and enough of that bacteria to have what is called a sourdough starter. So the starter has yeast, which helps the bread rise. And it also has different bacteria, which sour the bread. So you get that sour taste. It's the same thing when you're eating something like sauerkraut. There are bacteria that are actually digesting the cabbage and the carbohydrates. And they're basically like farting out little gas bubbles. That's why it gets bubbly. So what's cool is we're seeing not necessarily them, but we're seeing their handiwork. Mm. That's why I say it's this sort of invisible thing that's happening. We trust that it's happening. Yes, you can have a microscope and you can look at it. No, I'm not, you know, this is what I see and this is what whatever. But we're trusting that it's happening because we're seeing the output of that. We're noticing that the smell changes. We're noticing air bubbles. We're noticing that the taste and the texture and all these things. And by ob observing, you know, we can kind of assume that something is going on. To go back to why everything is in this book is about questioning, you know, question everything that you know is because what we know right now might really serve us well, but we could look back in 50 years and realize that the way that we saw the world was completely wrong. And I like to kind of find this interesting balance of like in this world we're living in, in this kind of matrix, this is the leading beliefs and this can be really supportive. And I'm always open to the possibility that tomorrow that could change and there could be a completely new way that we see these types of things. So I don't want to pretend that I'm the fermentation expert or that I've done the the research and, and have the electron microscopes and all the things to see what's going on. That is not me, but I'm taking everything that I've learned and observed and, and heard and experienced and trying to make it digestible so that people can, again, think for themselves or rather, as I say, their no self to kind of discover not just what's true, but also what's not true. Because usually in discovering what is not true, we actually learn a lot more than somebody just giving us the quote unquote answer. I think that has to be followed up by a follow-up question also mm. based on your book. So what is the deal with an endless selection pool of salts these days, Joshua? Uh, it's like an endless <laughs> selection of Gatorade or Doritos. I don't know. They're just like mixing extreme this and chili and, you know. Yeah, I mean, salt on a very simple level right, is a mineral and it, it serves a very important purpose in fermentation. We don't 
need it in fermentation per se, but it does make things taste a lot better. Um, it's said that salt opens up our taste buds to help us taste things more, but salt also helps with preservation. So not just putting it in things like sauerkraut for flavor and preservation, but if you think about salting things, sucks the moisture out of them so that they last longer. Bacteria thrives in moisture. So if you take out the moisture, just like us, you know, we need water to survive, to feed. If it's gone, there's really nothing there to eat. It's the same thing with dehydrating. You know, we do a lot of dehydration for preservation. If you, if you dehydrate something, you're taking out the moisture and it becomes very hard for that thing to spoil. Now, there are lots of different salts and there's Himalayan salts and there's kosher salts and black rock lava salts and stuff. But I find just simple things like kosher salt that work well, Himalayan salt, sea salt. I mean, you can, if you live by the ocean, you can literally go to the ocean, collect water, boil it long enough and evaporate all the water and you'll end up with just sea salt. So you can make and, and collect your own salt if you want. Maybe you can give it a try. You're, you're not too far from the ocean. <laughs> it might be too polluted uh, though. Too, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something to consider where you're getting these ingredients from. Like when you're writing this book, since it's 458 pages or 450 pages long, pretty dense, some pictures and obviously recipes throughout. But creativity, Yashua, how did you approach the right amount of balance since balance is also underlying theme throughout this conversations and just our conversations offline as well. How did you balance that? The amount of thesis, your philosophy of life, in addition to actually providing some practical recipes so people can actually get their hands dirty? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Maybe I need to work my balance because it started out as just a pamphlet that <laughs> I was going to, like I had so many people asking me about fermenting. They're like, oh, you know, I love sour, your sourdough is so good, or you make this and you make that. Can you teach me? Can you show me? And it's like, and so I started sending this kind of little like PDF thing to some people and I had like a whole, this is my sourdough process. And it felt really long and confusing just looking at it without any pictures and without any kind of background. So I started writing something a little bit more substantial. And then, I don't know, a few months later, there was a whole book and then I thought it was done. I thought it was done in, it was like a, Six week, I wrote the whole thing pretty much and I thought it was done. And then I started sharing it with people and it was in their reflection that I realized that I needed to put in more time into this book. Typically with the books that I write, it's a very personal experience. I'll have somebody kind of proofread it at the end, but I'm just writing it to get it out and that's that. But I wanted to do something with recipes to share all these things and to continue to share this philosophy. And I was noticing a lot of friends were like, so this is, you're, you're not just going to give this one away for free, right? You have a baby coming and, you know, you're, you're going to do something with this or this is a really good book. It needs to be X, Y, Z. So then I started refining it more and started adding more of my philosophies and trying to take people on an adventure. Because um, as you said, there might be recipes that are quote unquote, you know, wrong. Um, and you might read something and be like, that doesn't make sense. And to me, that's part of the process. And in a weird way, it's almost like a magic book where mm. like you're, you're being questioned on what's going on. So yes, you can open this book up to any page and be like, oh, um, fermented honey garlic. Cool. All I do is da 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 and that's that. And you can take it, you know, at face value. But there's so much more if you really want to understand how to figure out the recipes in your own life. Or if you want to understand fermentation in a way where you don't have to pick up the book one day, you can just look at what do we got in my garden? Okay, I have this green beans. 
what can I do with green beans if I add this percentage of salt, put it in this place after this many days, start taste, da, 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 da. So I really wanted to bring people into that world. But the other piece is I'm not a fermentation expert by any means. And there are so many great fermentation books out there. The Art of Fermentation, I think, is like the end all. Be it's, it's a perfect book. And it's a heavy book, though. It's a, more of a textbook kind of book. And Sander Katz, who is the author, he's like the fermentation master. People really, he's done so much in the fermentation world. And I'm not trying to pretend like I know as much or anywhere close to him or that I could compete with him. So when I kept writing the book and kept refining it, it became very clear. It's like what I feel I can bring to this space that isn't there is this more underlying perspective of don't make it about fermentation and eating. But how will understanding this process maybe transform your life? How does food relate to the, the journey that we take to understand who we are? So if, mm -hmm. you're, if you're going online and you're looking up a recipe for something and you're looking at five recipes and everyone's saying something different, well, how is that any different than when you are having a health issue and you go to five doctors, holistic or, or medical doctors, and they tell you five different things? How do you discern what's true for you? How do you make that choice? And that's the world that we're living in. There's so much information out there. We have to find a way to navigate it. And to me, like if somebody walks away with anything, even if they never make sourdough or sauerkraut in their life, that is still the heart of this book. Speaking of how do we know what to do, where is the discernment? I want to ask you a question directly from the book as well. In the second half of the book, you wrote, is it? The latest health trends, another fish in the old frying pan of trendy things to distract us from what's really going on, <laughs> or is this something that has stood the test of time? I know you refrain from adding your own two cents in the book, but I'm going to challenge you on the show and like to expand and actually respond. <laughs> it was definitely a bit of a joke and I can bring this out in a few ways. When I said to distract us from what's really going on, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are more in the camp of mind control, conspiracy, <laughs> you know, all these things that are happening. And the way that I see, I mean, this goes back to just a very simple way that I see life. There's the physical world that we live in. And you could say that's like almost the explicit reality that we're experiencing. And then there's this implicit place where everything just exists as potential. And this is, if you're someone that's in any way looked at quantum physics, it might sound like a big word. But to me, it, you know, it's a very basic concept that our reality is kind of shift, shifted and shaped and molded through our internal experience. So I think that the way that most people see the world or are told to see the world is that we have these senses and we just simply take them in and then we're affected internally. But I also see it happening on a very similar way externally, where like a computer, if we change our programming, the external world actually changes. Mm-hmm. And this is just from my own experience of having things happen to me that I can't explain. And the more I tune into these subtle frequencies and these understandings, the world just unfolds and makes sense. So I think most people see consciousness as I'm an individual consciousness and there's all these other individual consciousnesses out there and it's all kind of random and we're figuring it out. But the way that I look at it is more so consciousness is everything. Everything that I experience or witness is all part of consciousness. I can't prove it. I can't define anything. You know, I can give things names. I can try to make sense of stuff, but 
I can't ever be 100% sure of what's happening externally. I can just kind of try to guess and figure it out. So with fermentation, there's a lot of people that are pontificating on the health benefits. And I, I mean, I feel my body craves fermented food. When I'm, you know, when we get up and we have breakfast and we fry an egg from our chickens and make some fresh sourdough and throw in some kraut, like my body loves these things. So I know it feels good, but I don't want to be the person to try to say that eating fermented foods is healthier or it's better. It feels like it makes perfect sense to me right now. But there's enough people already making those claims that have the the backing and the science that, again, I just would rather focus on a different, more subtle level where it's like, what is it really about? What is life really about? Is it just about being healthy? Is that the only thing that matters? Is it just about being happy and following our dreams and falling in love? You know, I can't be the person to say that, but I know what makes sense to me because I've been living long enough and exploring these things long enough to be able to understand that. I would say it also goes back to when you and Aja, my partner, did that podcast and was talking about choice being an illusion. I feel very in tune with these spaces because I know fermentation makes sense to me through all the choices and all the things that I've done. But if at some point in my life that changes, I'm open to that. I'm not going to fight myself if something is like, oh, actually, there's some other way that I want to eat. Or maybe I just want to eat you know, raw meat, I don't know, whatever it might be, I'm open to those possibilities. I'm not closing myself off. So that's why I try in this book not to make any kind of specific point or to tell people how to think. But for you, don't listen to a word I say. I know nothing. I don't even know why you're listening to this podcast. That's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, your urge and your encouragement to really think truly for ourselves and make some sort of an informed decisions. Uh, not based on specific sex or certain aspects of your information necessarily, but just think twice and be thoughtful yeah. and make it an informed decision based on your intuitive feeling of what feels aligned based on what you want to do. Yeah. And, and this could be maybe um, heartbreaking for people to hear, but have you ever had somebody say to you that they say, I love you. And then they'll say, I'll always love you. I'll love you forever. You know, I've had these experiences many times in my life and at the time it feels great to hear that, that I will always love you. Allah will love you forever. No matter what, we'll always be family, whatever these, these claims that we make. And in the moment, it feels great. And I, don't, I get what people say it. And I've said it too many times. But when I look back at those relationships and, and, and people that I'm not even in communication with, I start to realize that forever is just a moment. It's not mm. actually, it's not actually forever. And in that moment, it's completely true. It's right. It's, I will love you forever. In that moment, it's it, that's forever. But then flash forward 10 years and you don't even speak to that person and you have no relationship. And it's like, oh, we make these giant claims because they sound so good, you know, because we want to make people feel good in the moment or we want to excite somebody or get them to buy our thing or whatever it might be. But if you look at life as a whole, well, I don't know what's going on. I'm just kind of taking it day by day and trusting in these ways that I've understood the world and trusting in a higher source and, and a higher power in the universe to continue to guide me. And so I'm always open and I don't want to pretend that I have the answers for anybody. And that's how it's been for me. There's been not a single person that I've just looked at and been like, oh, you've got it all figured out. Let me just, you know, shadow you and do as you do. Um, we're all here to figure out what makes sense for us. And I think that to tie it all together, to me, that is the thing that connects us all. 
in a world where it's so easy to feel separate, in a world where it's so easy to feel alone and like nobody gets us. And you see this in all the movies and documentaries and no matter how cool or popular or how famous or smart or whatever it is the person seems externally, how often do these people feel so alone and so isolated? But to me, the thing that keeps us all together and makes us as one is the knowing that we feel this confusion, is the knowing that we all can feel alone. Somehow in us feeling alone, to know that we can feel that, it's like we're all in it together. Couple of thoughts came up to me, Oshawa, and I think, and this is a reason why I've always loved sharing space with you, uh, online or offline, because I think through immersive and intentional and mindful sharing of the moment, it allows us to connect with different points within us, and it becomes more clear, and I think clarity unfolds through this natural dance of engagement without agenda necessarily. Couple of things for me is you talked about, you asked me what's going on in my life. I share some family stuff, career stuff, the process I've moved through this almost famous culture through the podcast. Another thing I didn't share, and I think it's the most meaningful and present in my life, is judging and imposing my value of determining what is meaningful to me. Mm. Like one of the things I struggled a lot once the podcast got bigger, I started to interact with people who have more finite amount of time and space and energy. And before I used to say that I'm looking for transformational relationships in the podcast, not transactional. Mm. But then with the podcast's height and just the people I'm interacting with, naturally, unless like you are regular, uh, once you interact with them on the podcast, there is no guarantee that around two or additional interactions is going to happen. That just the natural flows of life. And I used to struggle. I feel like, oh, I'm only talking with them to extract value both ways. They get the promotion from the podcast and I get to have them as content. It seems so transactional to me. And I do this interview every single week. And I love the time we spend together, you and other people as well. But unless we have this offline continuations of relationship that unfolds and develops, I felt very lonely and I felt like I'm only experiencing the moments I share with them only for the sake of content. So it felt very transactional. Mm. And then Becky, as what great life uh, lifelong partners do, they remind us with grace. And she said, but what if that two hours you spend with this guest that you may never see again is meaningful in itself? Because having these deep immersive conversations for two hours is a big ask for some of the folks, as you know. So she said, why do you have to measure that two hours of meaningfulness based on your own metrics? Why can't it be meaningful? Because it just, it, it was meaningful. Why do you have to create all these additional conditions of it's only meaningful if? Mm. I share that because I resonate with what you said, right? All of us have infinite invisible webs of life. I love this thought exercise. It blows my mind ever since I was young. I forgot when, but it hit me. Sure, there's 8 billion people, but the hundreds of people you see every single day on the streets. After this recording ends, you're going to see people. I'm going to see people. But then every single one of them have infinite, invisible, like interconnected web of life with their own families, own friends, own stresses, own mental health, own struggles. But we don't know any of them. And it's not that they're irrelevant in our lives, but they're non-existent in our life. 
And that to me creates more compassion and understanding. Because we, we only glimpse into a fraction of what we think we know. But outside of what we know is everything we don't know. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for being on that journey and just everything you're sharing about podcast and growth and trying to make sense of that in a way that's meaningful for you because it is tricky. We can, we can try to imagine what it's like to, to grow a business or to, to expand on something we're passionate about. But as we said earlier, the goal is really just getting us on this journey. Um, so to be in that space of having the awareness of, oh, maybe that part's not for me or maybe what's really meaningful, that is the journey of life. And that's the beauty of figuring out what is true because on some level we have to know on a very deep level, and this kind of goes back to the science thing, that what is true right now might not be true tomorrow, but can we still find a way to believe it in this moment and be okay if it changes and be okay if it's different or if it's not what we thought it was? That very pursuit is what started this whole journey for me of one day sitting in my car and writing all the thing, you know, I had just gone through a breakup and I'm writing, this is why I, this is what was wrong with me. This is all the things I was doing wrong. This is why we didn't work out and writing and writing, and writing. And then the next day I would go back and be like, no, that's not why it's this, this is why. And then da, 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 da. And I kept writing and writing and writing until I got to this place of like, actually, I have no idea. I'm, everything I'm saying is changing. Um, and so that is what gives me a lot of empathy for people out there because I can go on social media and judge people and, oh, they're trying to sell me and they're being deceitful and they're doing, but I don't, like you said, I don't know what's going on in people's lives. We don't know what struggles, um, you know, we have this people with retreats. Sometimes somebody says, Hey, they want to sign up for a retreat and they're excited about it. And then you don't hear from them for a few weeks. They just kind of go dark. And you're sitting there and you're wondering what's going on, trying to make up stories. And then you come to find out that, yes, yeah, something was going on in their life or that they were having a really rough time. And to even to even send that email took a tremendous amount of energy. And it's those things that I'm reminded, even if in the moment it's like, what's going on? It should be easy. Like we should all have integrity and just, you know, <laughs> be our word and da, 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 da. But I can think back to times in my life where I've been in a rough situation and to make a choice seem like impossible, even if it was a simple thing, the, the ripple effect that I perceived or the fear that I had around it. And that's what's changing. The more I slow down, the more I get away. You know, I've been dipping my toe back into social media a little bit, but the more I get away from, you know, some of the ways that I was connecting to people in the past and just kind of root back to, you know, just connecting with friends. Like it's great even just sending texts with you. And I think one of my, favorite parts of being on the podcast is just that staying in connection in the interim and just getting these texts and these check-ins and stuff to kind of step back from all that. And just to remember that we're all human and we're doing the best that we can in this world where we're not raised in a village where it's just, this is the way it is, but we are told that, you know, anything's possible and we can make it on our own and to navigate through all that stuff. Yeah. Just, I feel for people if you're out there and you're listening and something is, confusing or scary or lonely. You know, I think we've all been there in our own way. And again, that to me is what connects us all. Um, so I'm always open to the fact that we're all just reflections of each other and we never know. We can't discount, you know, how people are going to show up in our life and what they're going to mean and what they're going through and what support they might need. 
I think Will Smith said this in his autobiography, Will, a while ago. He said that school of life is the opposite from school. In school, they give you materials and you have to prepare for tests and then you take the test. In school of life, the life presents you with tests without an answer. And it's、mm-hmm. your responsibility to seek out the materials and the lessons from the test of life. And speaking of fear and I guess misconceptions and judgments, and you talked about your dumpster diving earlier. So I know we've tabled that and I think it's a cool way to finish before I hit you with the last question. Is <laughs> I had the opportunity to witness your、uh, dumpster diving routine when I was with you guys in January. And I, I believe dumpster diving phase for you is a couple years old, if I'm、mm. not mistaken. So, Why and what has garbage diving taught you so far? Because to certain folks, that <laughs> it sounds ludicrous, right? Like when, you, when I found out we were dumpster diving, I, I was like, I mean, Yashua represents a lot of esoteric things, and I respect him because of <laughs> esoteric interests. But dumpster diving?、Uh, yeah, I would love for you to share what comes up for you. Yeah, well, I've been dumpster diving for quite a long time because when I was living in Brooklyn and I. Didn't have a lot of money. I was always finding ways to eat as freely and cheaply as possible. But the last few years, we definitely kicked it up a notch. <laughs> so, this is a great to go back to your question earlier about questioning everything you think you know.、Uh, in America, maybe it's pretty commonly known now that we waste, I think 50% of our food that we produce goes to waste, which is a ridiculous amount of food. My guess is it's actually a lot more. So, grocery stores in the American mindset, Things have to be jam packed all the time. If you go to other places and maybe like you're in Europe and you go to a bakery, for example, they bake what they bake in the morning. And then if you go in at three o'clock, it's, they might have a couple things left. Some places in America still go by this, but the general idea with this kind of consumeristic, capitalistic world we live in is that let's walk into a store and let's have everything packed so people feel abundant, that, that we always have whatever you need, it's always here. So, in order to create that illusion, We have to waste a lot of food. And that's not the only reason we waste food, but that's a big reason. So, when you go to the grocery store, they just keep getting more and more and more food. And a lot of that gets thrown out. Some groceries have programs where they donate stuff to farms. There's an organization called Joy's Kitchen in Denver, and she gets tens of thousands of pounds of food every single week, goes to nice markets, oftentimes organic foods, and gets it. Donated for free, food they're going to otherwise throw out, and then she gives it out in a food bank to anybody that wants it. But there's still a lot of waste. So we go to the dumpster. There could be a, you know, there's the compost section, there's the recycle section, there's the dumpster. The dumpster is going to have more of your eggs and your meats and your dairies and products and things. And then the compost is going to have veggies and stuff. And, and sometimes there's nothing, and other times it's loaded to the brim with perfectly conditioned. Yes,、yeah, sometimes things are beat up a little bit and this and that, but oftentimes you're getting perfect condition organic peppers. If you go into the store, you're looking five, six, seven dollars a pound for red peppers. Meanwhile, they're also in the dumpster. So I will go into the dumpster and we'll take things that we want and we'll clean them with vinegar and water and cook them and give them out to people and share food. And this to me is just a way to. Take food that would otherwise just go sit in a landfill. And it's fun. It's kind of like trick or treating. You don't know what you're going to get and you don't know what's going to be in there. And there, there is a little bit of that addiction where it's like, oh, we're driving by. Should we jump in and check it out? This summer, 
I haven't done any dumpster diving. It's trickier in the summer because it gets hot and things start to break down quicker. But also we've been growing so much food that we don't need to. But we'll see you again in the winter. No, I thought it would be a um, cool question towards the end. Like you said, full mm. circle. Question yeah. everything you know. And exactly. I guess rewiring and relearning our relationship with any ideas or preconceived ideas we may have. In this case, dumpster diving. I wouldn't recommend that in LA uh, <laughs> <laughs> for, for many reasons. But obviously, as you talked about, fermentation, just like life, I think that's the thesis of this conversation, is it's not about the final product, but set aside the right intention to create the most conducive and supportive conditions and set the stage for whatever you want to create, whether that's fermented food, just a simple food dish, or career, or just meaningful relationships. Uh, with yeah. that, Yashua, if anyone could take away one thing from this forthcoming book of yours, this is a loaded, loaded questions. If people can take away one thing from this book as the author, what would you hope that intention to be? Why I say question everything is because maybe what we know right now, and we quite, let's say we really believe something and it feels good and supportive and we question it and we still believe it, great. But if we're not willing to look at our preconceived notions and our assumptions, what is actually driving our life? Right? We can look at free will versus you know predetermination and try to decide, is it nature or nurture or is it free will or destiny? But if we're not actually sure what's driving us, if we don't know the forces that are actually controlling us in life, well, then how do we actually have any sense of choice or any sense of freedom? If fear is really what's guiding our decisions and the thing that's getting us to start this business or to take this job we don't like or to remain in this relationship that doesn't feel good or to, you know, keep telling the same stories about ourselves. I always ask, is it, is it worth it? Right? Is it worth it to not reconsider? And even though it can feel like a big job to question what we know, because in this world to have this sort of confidence of like, I'm the one that knows it, it's great for selling things. I don't doubt that. But for me, the more clear I am, the more I know what just makes sense intuitively. And the only reason I got there is because I question everything that I once believed. So if you can take away one thing from this book, it is to question everything that you know and to see where you end up from that place. And I think this is a reason why true seeking or the process of destroying the false layer of self, it's a win-win-win-win scenario like you talked about. Because only two things are going to happen, only two possibilities. Mm. You're either going to trim away the saturated fat that's unhealthy for you mm -hmm. and get to the core healthy part that's conducive for your growth. Or through this process, your beliefs and core beliefs and ideas are only going to get strengthened through this vetting and self-evaluated process. So mm. if you partake in this truth-seeking journey within, it's a win-win-win-win. You're going to walk away with strengthened belief or more selective and more intentional beliefs. So true. Yeah. And you might cry and shed a few tears during that peeling back the onion process because, you know, truth seeking hurts <laughs> and it's going to have some growing pain in the process. But I think it's a worthy endeavor. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I really don't, don't make assumptions about what you think you know about other people because we all are just trying to figure it out. And 
like you said, there's a lot of layers to peel back and ultimately we, we end with nothing, but nothing, <laughs> nothing is, is everything. Just like forever is a moment and a moment is forever. Exactly. With that being said, Ashwell, tell us more about the book and where can people copy one whenever it is out. And just, just for off note, I will release this episode in an alliance with the timing of the book of the release. So by the time this episode is out, the book will also be available to get picked up wherever you desire. This is the Fermenting with Your Best Friend. It's a book. It's got pictures and stuff. Look at that. Yeah, fun times. The book will be out. You'll be able to get a digital copy of it, and then it will also be available on certain online marketplaces in select bookstores, more local Colorado bookstores to start, but I'll have it on my website. You can just buy it directly from me as well um, in both digital and physical copy. If if you're interested and you're seeing this, know that you can find it pretty easily. I think few of my regrets of having you on twice already was not talking about your books since we focus on spirituality and barefoot. So now it's cool that we have a third conversation to highlight your third identity of being an author. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. And to this is the first time I feel like we really dove deep into food in that way, which is fun. Especially come full circle from our first interview when you hadn't made the connection yet between the feet and the food. So, yeah, it's a pleasure to then, be on. Yeah, as always. And uh, just anyone that's listening, Joshua has six books. This is the sixth book of his series and the other five books are completely free. Well, one is not up. So, four is free on the website. One is a hidden treasure um, that reveals it to only select a few lucky ones. Uh, <laughs> but all the other four books are completely free. You can get the PDF versions digitally on his website as well. And of course, all the information is in the show link as always. But before we close out, uh, our regular experience, since now your regular appearances on the show, any parting message you feel called to share that you feel like we haven't touched upon today? No, I feel I feel great. I feel grateful to be on here and um, feel very calm and relaxed. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And like you're saying, it's a busy world. And regardless of the different ways we can interact, it's nice to have this time here to to chat and to share. And I look forward to seeing you whenever that presents itself. In two years. <laughs> two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you've always gifted us with like music and instruments at the end. Today it would have been perfect if you whipped out a quick dish <laughs> towards the, which is <laughs> instant. <laughs> instant uh, into my grave but yeah i appreciate your time uh your energy as always i like i said i love our conversations generally and uh, i think we are cut from the same cloth but operatedly differently based on our own vehicles of circumstances so yeah excited to see more pictures of the baby when it's born and um say hi to aja for me and um to all the listeners if you have made it all this the end please check out yashua's book Please work on your relationships, whatever that's with other people, substances, or some of the preconceived mm-hmm. ideas you may have. And I think through this vetting and this evaluated process, you really get to create meaning to your own life. And I hope to choose love over fear and come back next week by discovering more what's intriguing and what's relevant in your life. Until then, thank you for discovering more with us this week. <laughs>